You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Holy Spirit, as always, in every work of, of your church in our lives, we ask that you would do two things perpetually ongoingly. The work of repentance. Show us our need for Jesus and give him to us. Amen. All right. We are in week three of a four-week series on the prayer book. First week, we kind of overviewed the prayer book as a whole. The second week, we went through morning prayer, and that was last week. We talked about kind of coming to the heart of God and being booted out on mission, and that was the the scope and the arc of the morning prayer liturgy. And these next two weeks, for various and sundry reasons, we'll be focusing on the communion liturgy together. Um, And we're going to walk through just what our goals are, because I want to remind you, because this helps us understand the emphases, why I'm pointing out certain things, why I'm choosing to obsess over certain things and not other things. Two goals for this class are to Help us to better connect head and heart. Sometimes liturgical worship can be a really heady thing. And when I think about your discipleship and my discipleship, sometimes that heady enterprise is actually a way for us to hold God at arm's length. You ever thought about that? We let it just stay here. We don't let it penetrate our heart because it's actually easier just to sort of work our way verbally through the liturgy, to appreciate the beautiful language, to talk about the rich theology, whatever, and never really have that charismatic encounter with God that Cranmer sort of encourages us at the beginning of morning prayer with, that when we come and gather with the people of God for gathered worship, we actually encounter the presence of God. And I don't know about you, but anytime you've read encounters with the presence of God in Scripture, it was never an intellectual or primarily an intellectual exercise. It was an encounter where a heart was overwhelmed, right? So the goal is to connect head and heart, mostly so that in a way, uh, the head becomes a conduit through which the heart is penetrated. Or sometimes, God has to do an end around. That's, that's one of the uh, reasons why I think aesthetics uh, actually matter. Because God often uses those means to do an end around around our usual blockades, straight to our affections. I, who live in the musical worlds, along with Fred and Charles and our other musicians, recognize this as a lay of the land for, um, for church musicians, that... We hold powerful, affective tools in our hands as we help shape and paint and frame the liturgy, right? The second goal is to help us tune our ears to hear the gospel in our worship. And that's what we're going to do today, is we're going to look through this communion liturgy that we just went through at 9 o'clock and talk about how we can better hear what I'll just describe as the gospel-shaped structures of the liturgy so we can encounter it better. The theology of the prayer book, meaning the way the, the prayer book's biblical vision is this. The central question being asked during the time of the Reformation, which is when the English prayer book was birthed, was this. How are people changed, right? And the answer that the Reformers read the scriptures uh, to receive was that people are changed by a work of God in the heart. And how does God do this work, right? Does he do it through uh, guilt, laying on guilt by strong preachers about all the bad things that you're doing and how you need to shape up and do better? No, no. That's not how people actually change. It might sort of alter behavior for a while, but any of you who have kids know guilt is never a long-term motivator. It only works for a short amount of time. 
And that's just human reality under God, right? So how does God do this work of changing us in our heart? Through his word, particularly in the gospel. And we're going to expand this out today. So the driving force behind the Reformation, and therefore a driving force behind Reformation understanding of worship, can be summarized in this statement. Again, we're going to expand this today. The word of God makes faith. It births faith. If you are to have faith, you can't muster it up on your own. You need daily, hourly, the Spirit of God to come with the Word of God in you. That's why we're so, we just talk about the Bible so much here, because we believe this. If there's going to be faith in you, if there's going to be new life in you, if there's going to be a sort of difference-making character to the church and society, it's going to be singularly through the Word of God doing its work, which is why we can't depart from it. And why departures from it are so critically off course, you know? You lose this, you lose everything, okay? So we, we came up with this diagram, a way of looking at it. It kind of looks like, um, what does it look like? Uh, what's a, yeah, keep calm and carry on kind of thing. So there's a little bit of nod to England here. God's word comes down to us first, and we respond in faith. We give him faith. And so we'll take this diagram and kind of expand it out. The heart of the prayer book, therefore, the prayer book's aim is to unleash that word, to fill you with scripture so that it converts your heart, kind of like a turning over an engine through the power of the gospel. So now we come to communion, and if you're like me, and you look at our, our kind of like morning prayer, you open up our leaflet, and you're barraged with all these elements, right? All these headings and titles. You're like, what do I, what, what do I make out of this? Because right now, I'd, I'd say that the experience of the liturgy often feels like wandering through a forest and not being able to sort of get a lay of the land because the forest is so thick and I'm, I, all these old English words are flying at me and I, I don't quite know what to do with all these headings because I don't even know what they mean, right? And what we want to do is be able to helicopter out and look at the forest from a, a, a 10,000 foot view. And so the way of doing that is take all these elements and what I want to show you is a, a two-part structure to what has historically been the communion liturgy. And this is, a, this is, if the early church developed a worship service that was liturgical in nature, this structure was it. This was kind of the first thing. So this is very ancient, this structure is. And it's a two-part structure. The first is what uh, you might call the liturgy of the word. And it's a little bit of a misnomer because our understanding of the word of God is that it's not only the word of God, Jesus Christ himself is active chiefly and principally in scripture, but also through other means, prayer, preaching, sacraments. So it's a little bit of a misnomer that we call part one, the liturgy of the word, and we call part two, the liturgy of the upper room. Because the reality is, the liturgy of the upper room is also a liturgy of the word, Jesus Christ, right? But it's meaning the liturgy of the word in terms of scripture, because kind of like morning prayer, this half of the liturgy is throwing scripture at you and causing you to pray scripture. And the other half, starting with the great thanksgiving, the Lord be with you and with thy spirit. That part, that's the hinge where we begin the, the communion liturgy. It's actually in the earliest Christian practice of these two parts of the of, of liturgy, they would dismiss at the end of the liturgy of the word, the people called the catechumens. They would dismiss them from the worship service because this was only for baptized believers. It's one of the reasons why at the announcement times we say this is for people who believe in Jesus Christ and are baptized. And the people that were preparing for baptism, 
they would dismiss at this moment because the liturgy of the upper room was, was for people who believed in Jesus, right? And I guess the question is, you know, if you don't believe in Jesus, why would you want to receive from him, you know, receive of him, right? So it's these two parts here, the liturgy of the, of the word and the liturgy of the upper room. And that gives us a way to zoom out and see these two sections as a whole. But now I want to go back to this idea, and then I'm going to give us hooks to hang hearing the gospel in the communion liturgy. And we'll have next week to answer some other questions. So if not everything is revealed this week, hopefully we'll get to it next week, but we should have time for questions today. When we look at this idea that the word of God births faith, a Reformation understanding of Scripture, when they looked at Scripture and heard about what is this word of God and how does it come at us, they across the board, really, especially Calvin and Luther, said that the word of God comes with us, two forms is not the right word, but comes to us with, you know, singular voice, but in two ways, you could say. Comes to us in the form of what they would call capital L law, comes to us in the form of the gospel. And they would rightly divide and say that law and gospel are part of the way the word of God works on us. The law's job, the law's a specific job description, the gospel has a specific job description. You turn to 2 Corinthians 3, for instance, and you see Paul's dichotomy of the spirit and the letter and what he's doing there. And you read someone like Augustine exegeting this aspect of Paul. And even from the very beginning, the early church understood that what Paul was saying was there's a job description of the law, the letter. And what he said was the letter kills, ultimately, And the gospel, the spirit, brings life, okay? So there's a death and resurrection kind of motif. The word of God isn't there to give you good advice, okay? The word of God isn't there to help you sort of live your best life now or pull you up by your own moral bootstraps. The word of God, this sounds scary and not seeker sensitive, but the word of God exists to kill you and make you alive. That's very different than hey, Christian, you know, we've got some tips for you to live the Christian life in your marriage or in your single life. Here's how to be a single Christian for God. That's all important, but that's not the ministry ultimately of the Word of God. The ministry of the Word of God is to vocation of the law, to expose your need for Jesus. And so it's going to do that by hunting you down and saying that you don't measure up, which I don't, I don't want to go to church to hear that, but my flesh needs that. That's my flesh saying, I don't want to hear that. And so the old Adam, the old Eve, to use the language of Luther and the Reformation and Paul, doesn't want to hear how bad I am. But we must be confronted with the fact that we're just not, you know, we, we stray a little bit. We're miserable offenders, okay? We need that word, that law. But on the other side of that cracking open of our heart, we need the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, to swoop in and say, and yet, there is one who lived the perfect life for you that you could never live and offered that A plus report card of righteousness to God in substitution for your F report card. And then he on the cross took your F report card and bore it on himself so that all the judgment that God the Father, our holy God, rightly should give to you and to me, he pours out on his son once for all that one sacrifice oblation and satisfaction once for all on Jesus Christ. And when we hear those words, does not faith rise up on you and say, my Lord and my God, thank you for life. Do not 
works flow. Good works that God's prepared in advance for. Do not those things happen. That's the way the word of God works. So we're going to talk about this sort of law and gospel dynamic in the Holy Communion liturgy now. Law and gospel kind of coming at us, and then faith responding. What we're going to do is look at four cycles or four parts. If you're thinking about the communion liturgy, it's going to be sort of four times where we go through this maneuver together. The first time it happens is right at the beginning of the service. The collect for purity, right? The collect for purity says this. Oops. Hang on. Right there. Almighty God. Listen to this. This shouldn't make you feel good. Unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. Does that feel good to you? That's a wonderful opener for a worship service. It makes you feel all warm and fuzzy and cuddly, doesn't it? You know, when God's like, I see you. I know what you did last summer. You know, there's that kind of moment. I'm speaking cheekily, but this is meant to get right to the heart of things. Confronted with the voice of the word of God, which is the law that says, God sees you. God sees you and knows you. You might look pretty to everybody else around here, but God is not fooled. You look good in that suit. You look good in that dress. You look all made up, but God is not fooled, all right? He sees your heart. He knows what's in there. Even if you haven't uttered a word, he knows what's in there. So all these desires are known and all these, all these secrets, they're laid bare. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love thee and worthily magnify thy holy name. I'm not sure where we are, but I have to kind of go back to it. So here we are, the first part of the service, where we've heard that collect for purity. And then what do we read next? Either a summary of the law or the Ten Commandments during Lent. That's what we do. We alternate those because those are both prayer book options. Either way, how can you, if you thought you could get by the collect for purity, it was as though the liturgy wanted to make clear, no, you can't. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God, ah, just with a decent amount of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you did that, you're good. God likes that. Good effort, A for effort. No, the law of God does not say that. The law of God says, per- be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's what the law, it says, here's the standard, right? And the standard is love God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your strength. This is the first and great commandment. It's also why when we're praying through the Ten Commandments, if we do the Ten Commandments together, what is the response after every commandment? What do we say? Lord, have mercy and incline our hearts to keep this law. Why? Lord, have mercy, because as I hear this commandment, I'm not, I'm not feeling good right now, if I'm honest, because he's the one who knows all desires. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Have no other gods before me, Right? All these things flying at us. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. All these things, accusing, accusing, you know, cutting us down to size. And therefore, our response has to be, Lord, have mercy upon me. If I'm to keep this, it's going to be because you incline my heart. It's because you make it new. So we're setting this heart engine right at place. So we've heard this law, and then we start to get into some words of comfort, often found in this prayer, this collect of the day. 
and in the scripture readings and in the gospel and in this hymn that we sing. So the scriptures are meant, hopefully on most days within the lectionary, to declare this gospel word to you in a cycle form, to declare who Jesus is and what he's done, either revealed partially in the Old Testament or fully revealed in the New. It's meant to kind of take you through that. And then we respond. Why do we, why do we say the, the creed at this point and pray the prayers of the people? It's because once God has sort of done his work, the only thing left to do upon hearing his gospel is to say, I believe in you. I have faith in you because you put it in me, right? So that's cycle one. Cycle two, another time we, we go through this, is when we enter right after the prayers of intercession, you know, let us humbly confess our sins unto Almighty God. We go through another cycle where we're being honest. It's, it's like we have to kind of double back on our heart. And God is graciously giving other opportunities for us to kind of come clean and, and be honest. And then we hear these words in the declaration of forgiveness, you know. These words of resurrection that basically say, God is the one who grants you true repentance. God is the one who absolves you and forgives you in Jesus Christ. He's the one. This is who he is and what he's done. And then these comfortable words, these four comfortable words that I want to look at for just a brief bit. 15. These four scripture statements. Now, it's interesting. Cranmer lifted these from a bunch of Reformation liturgies that have been going on, but he tweaked something. Uh, in, in the Reformation, there were other liturgies that had similar scripture quotations. In fact, there were lists of five and six in uh, Martin Bootser's liturgy or in, um, in other liturgies that were in England with, with foreign worshiping communities. But Cranmer chose this particular order, and Cranmer lifted, come to me all you who are weary and, and burdened. This hadn't previously been in any of the liturgies except Zwingli's right before the table, interestingly. And Cranmer, unlike the other uh, Reformation liturgies, this, you know, it, the Reformation liturgies was confession, absolution, this declaration of forgiveness, and then these comfortable words. But those Reformation liturgies made an option to either declare the absolution or you could read these words. Cranmer didn't make them optional. And part of the reason he did that, we think, is because he wanted this to be a turning point where upon receiving the forgiveness, you started hearing wooing words that drew you to the table. And this was kind of a hinge moment in the original liturgy for when after kind of receiving the fullness of the liturgy of the word, we hear, so now that you've been forgiven, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will refresh you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is a true, are you still doubting? This is a true and trustworthy saying that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with God the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You see him pulling you to the table saying, hey, you think you're broken? You think you're not worthy of this? You aren't, but Jesus is. And Jesus is the one who's calling you right now. He's the one who's saying, come to me. If you're weary, come, and, and I will refresh you. I will spiritually give myself to you. All right? So that's kind of what's happening there, these comfortable words. And then the faith response of this cycle is passing the peace, which... We recognize, you hear these words, the peace of the Lord. And this comes after, you got to recognize the way this order is supposed to work on our hearts. It comes after you've been declared forgiven. Therefore, the peace of the Lord be always with you. You're reconciled to God. And therefore, as we 
shake one another's hand. We're demonstrating that that vertical reconciliation has horizontal implications. It means that we can be reconciled with one another, whatever our differences, whatever our backgrounds, whatever our grudges, whatever our complaints. This forgiveness, parable of the talents, right? This forgiveness uh, is so remarkable that all I have left to do is pass this peace to others. God has made peace with the world. This is 2 Corinthians in action. We are ambassadors of reconciliation. So that's a way of faith not only goes back to God, but I should actually put another arrow kind of sideways because this faith gets demonstrated in good works towards others, liturgically symbolized in passing the peace. You know? So there's a huge theological rehearsal that we go through. The liturgy is meant to sort of be a rehearsal for all of life. You know? It's meant to kind of be a formalized, ritualized version of the way our life should go. We go to God in confession. He reminds us of Jesus Christ. We're empowered again to go and love and serve the world in your vocation. And that's very much a living out of your faith, all right? And there's a welcome and a blessing that often feels very faithy, all right? Third, very simply, because of our philosophy of the sermon, what is a sermon supposed to do? It's supposed to declare God's word to you. What is God's word? His law and his gospel cutting you open and sewing you back together again. And what do we do in response to a sermon? We have an offertory. And this is what's important. In the Reformation, you might not recognize this, and this may not be a big deal, but it has a shaping effect over generations. You need to think of the offertory as the end of the liturgy of the word, not as the beginning of the liturgy of the upper room. And it's often a kind of mental game that we might need to go through to do that. But why would that be important? Because the offering is something we do in response. We put money in a plate, and that's just a, that's really a symbol of saying, in response to your word, God, in response to your grace and your mercy in Christ, I give my whole self to you. My heart and all, as the hymn we sang today, one of my favorite hymns, Spirit of God, descend upon my heart. My heart and altar and your love the flame. I lay myself down. Burn me up. May I be a living sacrifice for you, O God. You only say that rightly in response to God's grace, not to get it, Right? So the danger of viewing the offertory as the beginning of the communion liturgy is that it looks as though we're trying to pay in before we can get something from God. And the reformers wanted very clearly for you and for me to see we don't pay in anything. Jesus paid it all, all right? So we're receiving. We're receiving from God. The offertory is the end of the liturgy before this big hinge, the Lord be with you. That's the third cycle. And then when we get into the communion liturgy proper, the as we walk through communion together, think of it as one long kind of law gospel faith session. The great thanksgiving, the sanctus, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Man, do you remember when Isaiah heard the angels singing that? What was his first response? Woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people. That's why we drop to our knees, you know? We don't have to. We don't have to. We're not bound to. But it makes sense posture-wise that the moment of sort of entering into God's presence afresh, we would recognize that as the angels cry, holy, 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 the only thing I can do is say, forgive me my trespasses as I have forgiven those who have trespassed against me. The only thing I can do is say, I do not presume to come to your table, prayer of humble access, merciful Lord, trusting in my own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. We're not worthy so much as to gather up even the crumbs under your table. But you're the same Lord 
whose property is always to have mercy. So even in our confession right there, God's wooing us with promises of who he is and what he's done. And so after our confession, what is there left to do but simply to walk right up and receive the goodness of the Lord, the gospel in tangible form that we can touch, tangible form that we can smell, tangible form that we can taste. God's divine I love you to you. That's the thing about the table, people. The word that you should be hearing when you come to the table, the words that you should be hearing are really only three. And they should be straight from God's mouth to your ears. They're I love you. If you're hearing other things at the table, or if other things are sort of distracting you from hearing that word, I, as your pastor, encourage you to let go of those other distractions and hear this gospel coming at you. Hear Jesus. You know, as the ministers and other folks who give you this bread and this wine, what do we say? The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you. I always try to look people in the eyes and emphasize the for you nature because all of a sudden there's a singular moment where you aren't sort of receiving the gospel in mass from one preacher to hundreds of people. You are hearing God's words to you in particular, God singling you out and saying, I love everybody. I love you. I love you. Hear hear those. There's two times when the ministers read through our sort of liturgical words, uh, what are called the words of distribution. There are two times where this for you comes up. Body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you. Preserve your body and soul unto everlasting life. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you. And feed on him in your heart by faith, right? You hear those words echoed yet again when you get the wine. What highlights do I want to do? We talked about confession. Oh, we didn't talk about confession. I want to look at that real quick, and that might be where we stop. And then we'll look at the uh, post-communion prayer, and we'll open it up for questions. Almighty God, Father of our... So this is, we, we're rewinding a little bit. We're going back to the place where we're confessing our sins. I want you to see what's going on here. What things I want to highlight. Remember last week how I said when the reformers were translating this liturgy from Latin to English, especially Cranmer was fond of, well, he's like, why, why use one word when two can do, right? Cranmer was fond of expanding these. And why did we say Cranmer was interested in expanding these singular words? Why acknowledge and bewail, you know? Because he wanted to, us to spend more time soaking our affections in what this means to confess our sin. So it's, this is the thing, guys. This confession shouldn't feel rote. I know it does sometimes, and there are some weeks where my heart's just not in it. But the reason he wrote acknowledge and bewail is so that you not only know it up here, but you, you moan it. You moan it. I, I acknowledge and bewail, and acknowledge and bewail my manifold sins and wickedness, right? They, they, they're sort of like an origami. If I unfolded my sin, it, it, it would have so many creases and layers and intricate parts to it. Manifold sins and wickedness, which we, and this is a tricky line, okay? Because this means something different in Old English than we say. You know, we say from time to time, you know, like I sin from time to time, you know, every once in a while. That's not what this means. That's actually where this is unhelpful. 
because this makes us weak little sinners, you know, who just have little sins, little baby sins, which we from time to time most grievously have committed. What this really means, this, this would be like our expression time after time, which we time after time, again and again and again and again, I sin against you, most grievously have committed. I just didn't commit them, but they grieve your heart every time I do. This is the nature of our love relationship, God, that as I sin against you, your heart is grieved over this stuff. And I do it time after time after time after time by thought, word, and deed against thy divine majesty. And you hear this second half? We do earnestly repent and are heartily sorry. Old English, heartily, right? We talked about this last week. It's not hearty like thick Campbell's soup. It's heartily like from our heart. I am sorry from the bottom of my heart. This sorrow is true contrition. It's not just words on my lips. We're heartily sorry for these our misdoings. The remembrance of them is grievous unto us. The burden of them is intolerable. Have mercy upon us. And then we hear those wonderful words that God forgives us in Jesus Christ because of who he is and what he's done. So all that's left to do is come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I want to stop here this week and answer any questions that are cropping up in your head. David has a microphone for you. Thanks, Zach. Um, question on the confession. Yeah. In morning prayer, it's right at the beginning. And uh-huh. It's later in the service for communion. Is there is there any thought behind that? Yeah, that's a good. That's a great question. I mean, I highlighted last week that one of the reasons it, it was the, the invention of Cranmer and the other reformers to put confession at the front of the service. Um, part of the reason I imagine can't get into his mind here, but part of the reason that isn't the case for the Holy Communion service is that the collect for purity and the law kind of function in that way. So there was less of a, maybe a desire to to put that there, but to kind of re-up it a little later. But it's also, Cranmer was working with and architecting with a received liturgy, with the way that this sort of normally went. Um, And so this is roughly where this fell in the really historic Christian liturgy. Good question. Um, Zach, could you talk a little bit about the phrase and grant that we may ever hereafter serve and please thee in newness of life? Yeah. Because I feel like sometimes when I when I read that, it almost sounds like Uh-oh. I'm confessing my sins and then saying, please don't ever make me have to confess my sins again. <laughs> which right. Which very... Well, so, uh, I mean, that's a great question, especially given what we're talking about, this law gospel dynamic, right? Um, because I, I cringe a little bit because I know I really want this to be true. But I know I'm going to go from this place and be ju- just as much in my flesh a hypocrite as I was before. But it is nevertheless a prayer of the people of God. It was nevertheless the aim of the word. You read Paul, and this salvation was always unto good works. It was always unto something. There's a trajectory to this salvation. And you see time and again that this confession and these liturgical moments are always giving nods and pointing us forward. You see that in the post-communion prayer. You know, and, and do all such good works as thou hast prepared for us to walk in, right? There's always an end game to this, which is that you're free to actually live in your neighbor. You're actually free to love your neighbor. You're actually free to go and, and serve thee. And, and so 
the faithful Christian, at any point of hearing the gospel, is always hopeful that we might, with greater and greater truth, serve and please thee in newness of life. So it's kind of saying, Jesus, would you take the wheel? Jesus, live in me. Not I, but Christ. We want to serve him. This is, this is what the new person, the new man, the new woman in Christ says. God, I want to live for you. It's what's all of the language of the Psalms is, I give my life to you. I, I live it for you, you know? And that language is only said by Christ in us, the Spirit. So it's a, it's a kind of way of moving out of confession and into that. But notice that it says, and grant that we may ever hereafter serve and please thee. So even that, even our good works are a gift. That's one of the things I love about the, this theology of, of the way good works work. Good works is not so much something we do. It's like waking up in the morning and walking out into your neighborhood and finding a present there, and you get to open it. That's what the Christian version of good works is. He's prepared it already. It's there. You just get to walk and open it up. Whatever that good work is for your spouse, for your co-workers, for your neighbor, for your kids. Every good work is a gift to you that you get to open up. And God's prepared it for that day. So open up your door and look for those good works. Go open them up. It's a very different than saying, I've got to prepare this present for God so that he sees that I'm true and real and good and that he likes me. Because what they're basically saying is that's already been done. That's already been dealt with. You're totally free. There's, there's a whole different kind of freedom that the Christian knows that the rest of the world doesn't. Because this freedom is, I, I, just, I don't have to earn anything. I'm just free. I'm free to walk around and open this gift that God's already placed there. It's like I just open my, oh, there's one. Let me go do that. Oh, there's one. Let me go open that. That's the free life of the Christian, just sort of wandering around. Good works for us to do. Out of care in the world, right? We long for this to be the case. We long for a glimpse of that. Yeah, Tandy. I think it's so wonderful to have the prayer book because when you say these prayers as a child, you know, they don't yeah. mean a lot. And I can remember as a teenager thinking, oh, good, well, I'm going out into the world and save it and go to the Peace Corps and the Appalachian mm-hmm. and I'm going to make everything better. And then at my age, you say, oh, the world isn't any better. This. I'm a failure. I, well, you just say, I'm trying, but I know I can't do it, so I have to keep saying this. Yeah. I'm trying, but I can't. It just gives it more meaning. It's exactly right. Um, Brendan Bennett reminded me, if you, have you, have any of you actually read Luther's 95 theses? What's the first one there? The first one says, all of life is repentance. The sum of the Christian life is repentance. That's what you're saying. You're saying that basically I, I sort of never depart from the need to go through this motion of confession and receiving forgiveness and coming back and being granted that I may hereafter ever serve and please thee. Tim. In the meantime, did everybody know that Tandy's a drummer? I just found that out not that long ago. Isn't that cool? Anyway, okay. Tim. Just curious, Zach, if if, um, grant that we may ever hereafter serve and please thee in newness of life, is it all like a, a parallel with the gospel of According to John, being born again, born yes. new, Nicodemus. Yeah, I think so. That's a great connection to make because, that, I mean, as we said, the work of the Word of God is not good advice. It's not, um, you know, 
coach, life coaching. The Bible's not a life coach manual, right? The Bible is, the work of the Word of God is to ultimately bring death and resurrection. In other words, to be born again. And I know that that word has all kinds of, if you've grown up in sort of a church context, that born again language might feel a little awkward to you. Maybe some of you. Maybe some of you recognize it as the words of life from John, because that's what they really are. But those words have gotten maybe a little tainted to uh, make us think like Bible thumpers. But that's the, that's the biblical language for what the Christian life is, death and resurrection, being born again. That's, that's why Nicodemus had such a hard time talking with Jesus about that issue. He's like, how can I be born again? I can't re-enter my mother's womb. That's strange. Jesus was like, and you're the teacher of the law to Israel? And you don't get this? Death and resurrection is the only way it comes. Victory through weakness. It's the only way it comes. Any other questions? Wow, Holy Communion Liturgy and no more questions. That's Next week, what we're going to do is uh, look, I'm going to give you a little sheet of paper where you're going to get to see the sort of evolution of the communion liturgy over the course of 500 years. It'll help you to understand why Advent has made some of the liturgical decisions that we've made uh, in step with earlier prayer books. And hopefully that diagram will be helpful. And it's really small, so I'm going to put it up there, but I'm also going to give you printouts so that you can see. And we'll be able to sort of name these prayers to the end, that we all, again, might hear this gospel, this good news about Jesus more clearly in, uh, in the liturgy, and that we might encounter his presence, and the word of God might actually do its work that we ask and pray the Spirit to do every week. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, um, we ask that you'd take away uh, from our minds and hearts anything that should be burned, uh, and only keep that which is edifying to us, and draws us to you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for this time together. Help us to engage this liturgy heartily and fill Advent with your spirit. May it, may it continue to be a place that's living and alive, on fire uh, with your gospel. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.